This morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and we're finishing the book. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 24, that's our text. You want to open your Bible there or navigate on your device. While you're navigating, turn the volume volume off or down. Nothing is as important as being here right now. Then I won't have to make fun of you when your phone rings. 1 Corinthians 16, the topic, Paul describes the household of Stephanus as having addicted themselves to serving the saints. The title of our message, Servaholics Theonomous. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the word of God and the spirit of God to uh, apply it to our hearts and to our lives. We love getting together, Lord, around your word, uh, filling the room with worship first and then attentively listening to what you have to say. We thank you. We praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. While preparing to go undercover, Jack Bauer started shooting up heroin in order to convincingly pass himself off as a drug user. He kept using heroin during the operation and afterward. As day three of the series 24 began, he was still addicted. Jack addicted himself for the success of his mission. The household of Stephanus did something similar. If you're reading in the King James Version, verse 15 is translated, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They addicted themselves to their mission of serving God's saints. Most undercover agents employ evasive tactics rather than participate in drug use or other illegal activities. If a believer can addict himself or herself to serving, It must follow that we can avoid serving by employing evasive tactics. We're going to concentrate on addicting ourselves to serving while keeping an eye out for any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, celebrate the example of believers who have addicted themselves to serve. And number two, catch the earnestness of believers who have addicted themselves to serve. Uh, Let's take a look at some examples first in verses 1 through 21. Now, as the Apostle Paul closed out this letter, he named seven specific servants, one entire household of servants, a house church of servants, and a church of servants, and a group of churches who served. He only described one person and household as addicting themselves, but I think it would be all right to see the others as addicted too. And by the way, in case you haven't Googled it yet, theonomous is a real word. It means governed by God or subject to God's authority, perfectly describing a self-addicted servant of the Lord. I want to start with verses 13 and 14 because they summarize a self-addicted servaholic. It's what you could see in those that Paul listed and what he wanted for the beloved in Corinth. It's what we, of course, would want for ourselves as believers. So he says in verse 13 and 14, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. At least once most days, I hear someone thank a stranger for their military service. I'll do it now. If you are active duty or retired, we thank you for your service. I thought of that because the words Paul used in verse 13 and 14 are military uh, vocabulary applied to believers. That alone tells us that serving God's saints is more like being in the military than it is working for an employer. For example, in the military, they tell you where to go. 
I realize there is some latitude in terms of choosing a posting you can put in for different things. But generally speaking, they post you where you're needed. After all, someone had to go to ADAC, Alaska, which was, is ADAC still open or did they close that? Terry, do you know? Okay. It's easy for a believer to bring an employment attitude to bear on their walk with the Lord, as if they decide where to go and not the Lord. I'll tell you, knowing, where you, knowing you are where the Lord led you and wants you is better than being in some paradise of your own choosing, floundering spiritually. You are on watch. There are at least three things being on watch suggests to us. First, we're to understand that we are constantly on watch. Our Christian life is a watch. We're not just watching when we serve in the church or are involved in official activities. Second, we are to adopt an attitude of not on my watch with regard to any advancement by the enemy. We can't give ground to the devil or yield to the flesh even for a moment. That ground is hard won back. And then third, we are also watching for the imminent return of the Lord. Next, you read that you are to stand fast in the faith. This isn't telling you to have more faith. The faith is a term that describes the non-negotiable truths of the Bible. You are to believe that you have every resource for godly living. Be brave. The King James Version reads, quit you like men, meaning act like a man, grow up, be mature. This is for ladies too, but I guess it would be act like a woman, hopefully. Coming on the heels of standing fast, it reminds me of those scenes in movies when the enemy is fast approaching, but the heroes hold their ground and they hold it and they hold it and they hold it until the last possible second and then they spring their trap. The Christian life is like that. You just hold your ground and, and don't chicken out. Don't turn around and run. Be strong literally is be strengthened. It is something done to you, not by you. It's a reminder that the Lord indwells us by his Holy Spirit to empower us. We are strengthened by the Lord. Something to meditate upon separately from the study. We sometimes think of the Holy Spirit as being depleted over time like a battery going dead. Uh, you, you hear that in people's prayers. Um, you know, and, and I, I say the same thing, so I'm not criticizing it. You say we need more of the Spirit as if we need to be recharged. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Godhead, very God of very God. And so you either have the Holy Spirit in charge or you don't. He, he doesn't come tired to you. He doesn't get run down. He doesn't need to be recharged. He's always full spirit. And, and so uh, it's up to us to either yield to him or not. We have his full power available to us all the time. Verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. All this soldier talk is now qualified by the word love. I'm to have the submission and discipline of a special forces soldier. We're to be servant team six, as it were, and then act with humility and mercy and gentleness and compassion that comes from having the Lord's love. Now that we've looked at that, we can celebrate the saints who example this to us. So let's go back up to verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you also must do. Around the time of Paul's writing, the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem was suffering terribly. Church history records that there was a severe famine in the land. And adding to the difficulties of the famine, the Christians were being systematically persecuted. 
Paul had instructed the churches in the regions of Galatia to collect financial aid for the Jerusalem Christians. He said to the believers in Corinth, so you must do also. It's fun here. He didn't suggest that they give or that they pray about giving. He told them to give. You even read the word orders. Now, we don't order you to give. It wouldn't work anyway, but um, it's not a good technique and uh, it's not something that we want to do. Even Paul's orders are going to be qualified by what he said in verse two. This was a special one-time gift. We need to be careful using this to teach about giving to God's work in general. And so this wasn't the weekly offering or anything like that. This was a special uh, collection for benevolence. And so we can learn some things from it, but we want to be careful uh, in, in making, you know, too much of it. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. The believers met when? Well, that would be Sunday, first day of the week. They didn't meet on the Sabbath, or, which is always Saturday, and neither has Sunday somehow become the Sabbath day. There's a lot of, we talk about the Sabbath a lot because it comes up in scripture. We spent a lot of time talking about it in Exodus during that series. And um, uh, the Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It always has been, it always will be. Nothing has ever changed God's Sabbath. Uh, Christians worship on Sunday because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And we see that pattern in the early church, even among those who were Jewish. And uh, there's other groups, Christian groups, who say that the Sabbath now is Sunday, that the Saturday Sabbath has become the Sunday Sabbath, and that's just not true. Uh, and, and then the bottom line is we don't participate in Sabbath keeping because that is part of the old covenant. I came across an illustration the other day, I think I, I used it a, a few weeks ago, but, you know, people say, well, why don't, you know, if it's one of the Ten Commandments, if in the Old Testament, uh, you know, if it was in the Garden of Eden and all that, why don't we uh, obey the Sabbath? It's because we're under a new contract. We're under the new covenant. And that's the only contract that we have. Uh, those of you who go from contract to contract, maybe your teacher's union or things like that, once you negotiate the new contract and it's signed, nothing from the old contract has anything to do with you anymore. Your old insurance that was really good insurance is gone. And now you've got whatever stupid insurance that they negotiated for you. And you can't go back to the old. It's just gone. It's gone. So there's nothing in the New Testament about keeping the Sabbath. There's a lot about worshiping on Sunday and about the Jews keeping the Sabbath, but nothing about Christians. And so that's the contract, the covenant that we're under. Uh, there, there are passages that... Uh, would back up all the other nine commandments, uh, and but we're under no contract to keep the Sabbath. And so uh, we can get all of that from here. As he may prosper indicates it was up to each believer to determine his or her giving. Paul wanted them done before he arrived. It wasn't that he had some aversion to passing the plate. He wanted them to be efficient servants, not waiting until the last moment. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. There was no PayPal in those days, no wire transfers between banks. Monies collected had to be hand carried. 
The fact that they would carry letters of approval meant these were men of solid character and integrity. Uh, when we would occasionally, as uh, high schoolers or young adults, go down to Mexico to uh, usually Ensenada, we would split up our money and hide it all over our body as if no one would be able to find it in your shoe. Uh, you know, no one would ever think that you would have money in your shoe uh, because you frequently got into situations where you might have to bribe yourself out of trouble or not trouble, just bribe, you know, I mean, people just want money. And so, um, you know, we thought we were really smart. And um, of course, you think you're smart when you're in high school, but you're an imbecile, actually. So it's best to send several men to ensure the safe delivery of the money. Traveling was a hazard. They were willing to serve the body in Jerusalem, risking their lives. When you traveled like this with large sums of money, you were risking your life. Serving always will involve some risk, if not actual danger. We don't need to go out of our way to go places that are dangerous. If God calls us to places that are dangerous, then we can trust him to be with us. Uh, but serving the Lord is going to involve some risk at some point. I can't tell you what that risk is going to be, but it's not going to be easy. Paul was ready to go with them or not because the Lord was his travel agent and it would change all the time. Verse five, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia for I am passing through Macedonia and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So as a full-time itinerant minister, Paul had some idea of where he might be tomorrow, but that's about it. He might hang with the Corinthians a few days or for a season. All he could hope for was to be there a while. After that, it was wherever. Do you have your whole life planned out? Are you certain it is God's plan too? Uh, I, I, you know... Everybody wants to know what your plan is. I, the young people, where are you going to go to college? What do you want to do with your life? Uh, maybe we should start asking young people what God wants to do with their life. Have you, talked about, have you talked to the Lord about what he wants to do with your life? Parents, sometimes you're in the way. I have to say this because you have an idea of exactly what you want to see your children do. And, and, and that, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, to start with, but... What does God want your children to do? And what does he tell them to do? Here's a question that might help decide. Does the plan involve serving the Lord more or serving the Lord less? But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Paul had wanted to go to Ephesus once before. God closed that door. He wouldn't let Paul go there. Instead, that first time God sent Paul to Macedonia Immediately, he was put in prison overnight at Philippi. Then he was run out of town from Thessalonica. He might have thought he'd chosen the wrong door, but we see in hindsight that God was in charge of all of that. When Paul finally got the green light to go to Ephesus, when the great and effective door opened to him, he was met by many adversaries. One sense of what he was saying is that he couldn't leave Ephesus yet because there were still adversaries to overcome. It was kind of like Joshua going into the promised land. Promised land isn't a picture of heaven because there's battles and warfare there. Promised land, we're told in, in, in Joshua that, and judges that God left some enemies in the land so that they would learn how to fight. Uh, and so Paul understood that ministry 
involved opposition. And this is something that blows, it still blows my mind and it blows everybody's mind. They get into some kind of a ministry seeking to serve people and serve the Lord and they find there's opposition often from the very people they're serving, but certainly from other sources as well. And the first inclination is to quit, is to think, well, this can't be from the Lord. And yet Paul says, oh yeah, that's exactly from the Lord. He provides adversaries so that you can learn how to fight them. And so Paul expected and experienced opposition. He didn't assume that it meant God had closed a door. It could be just the opposite. So we've counseled you over the years to not immediately withdraw or quit in the face of opposition, but instead try to value the opportunity to serve opposed. You're not going to get those opportunities all the time, and they're good for your spiritual strengthening. Verse 10, and if Timothy comes, see to it that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Timothy was a young disciple uh, who was Paul's companion on many of his journeys. His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois are commended for their raising him in the things of the Lord. We don't know anything about his father except that his father was a Greek. He is first brought into notice at the time of Paul's second visit to the city of Lystra, where he probably resided, and where it seems he was converted during Paul's first visit to that city. The apostle called him his own son in the faith and arranged that he should become his traveling companion. Paul urged the believers to not despise Timothy. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, let no one despise your youth. Imagine being Timothy. I'm exaggerating, but it seems everywhere he went, Christians despised him for his youth. His despisers, had they undergone a painful adult circumcision in order to attend synagogue with Paul? Paul said, hey, I've got a great news for you. I want to take you on my missionary journeys, but we're going to be going into Jewish territory. And even though your father was a Greek, your mother and grandmother are Jews. And if you want to go into the synagogue, you're going to have to be circumcised. So let's do this. Sure, that's great. His despisers, had they experienced the daily dangers to life and limb merely by accompanying Paul? And yet they found it so easy to despise this young man for whatever reason. Timothy was one of Paul's closest co-workers, yet he was despised. The point here is still he served, even among the saints who despised him. There's a scene in the Val Kilmer film, The Saint, where Elizabeth Shue's character makes a run for the gate of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. She makes it, and as the gate shuts, the Marine Guard orders the Russian mobster chasing her to stand down and get away from the gate. The mobster spits in his face and it just runs down his cheek, but he just stands there, the, the Marine guard, he just stands there, he does nothing. And any retaliation on his part would be a weakening of his position, actually. What, what, it's as if he's saying, hey, is, that's all you can do to me is spit on me, and that's nothing. If this gate opens, you're through. And so the guy just kind of sheepishly walks away. And so sometimes the strongest thing is to stand in the Lord's strength uh, and not see it as a weakness. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come this time. at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. 
Paulus was a Jew from Alexandria described as eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord according to an imperfect understanding of the disciples of John the Baptist. When he came to Ephesus, he was more perfectly taught by Aquila and Priscilla. He learned about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the difference that makes in ministry. He became a preacher of the gospel, first in Achaia, and then in Corinth. Paul strongly urged Apollos to go to Corinth. He didn't just ask him, he strongly urged him. I don't think I could refuse Paul. I, I mean, if Paul asked you something, if you could you know, go back in time, Paul said, hey, would you like, yeah, sure, whatever you say, because you're a heavy dude and, and you're an apostle and you've been through, yeah, if you're asking me to do something, I'm gonna do it. And, and yet he strongly urged Apollos and Apollos said, no. What we can glean from his refusal is that like the RCA terrier nipper, a servant listens for his master's voice. And so Paul could urge Apollos all he wanted, but God wasn't giving him that same witness in his spirit. And so he said, no, I'm not going to go at this time. God may speak through others, of course, but it must resonate with what he tells you. Don't be looking for other people to make your spiritual decisions. Uh, you have to make, you can get counsel and advice and it should be biblical and godly. But a lot of times we're looking to other people and it becomes kind of a, I, it's kind of a game. You ask people certain things in certain ways and you know what, you kind of know what they're going to say. Uh, because number one, it's hard for people to be brutally honest with, with each other in the first place. And so if you, if you, hey, what do you think? You know, I've been this and this and that happened. So what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, do what the Lord wants. You know, it sounds good. Yeah, great. And it's hard for people to say, you know, I think you're on the absolutely wrong track. Uh, you know, and, and so be careful with that. Hear from the Lord. Then in verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have devoted themselves or addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. So the household of Stephanus, first of Paul's converts in Corinth, they got saved and immediately got serving. Looking at them, you came to the conclusion that they were addicted to serving. They had all the telltale signs. I was gonna go into this a little bit, but I won't. But there, there are, and so those of you who have dealt with addiction in your own lives or the lives of others, you, there's signs, obviously, that people are addicted to something. And so Paul's saying that, hey, if you're serving the Lord, people can tell. They, they say, hey, that, that guy there, he's a, he's a Jesus addict. He's a servaholic. Stay away from that guy, you know, that kind of a thing. But what he's saying is here, no, emulate that guy. Example, see the, that lady's example. Verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. These three men were probably the ones who brought to Paul the letter from the Corinthians asking him to clarify the issues that he covered in this letter. So a letter had come to him from Corinth uh, and he was writing them back to correct these issues. Their faith and faithfulness, which was lacking in most of the Corinthians was supplied to Paul as an encouragement. Now I can see how these guys refreshed Paul's spirit, but how did they refresh the spirit of the Corinthians? Seems to mean that their visit gave Paul the opportunity to respond personally to the church and therefore refresh any who would receive his letter as the word of God. Uh, as we've gone through this letter, you've seen there are massive problems. In a church where sexual immorality is rife and where believers are suing one another and where there's division and strife of all kind, 
it's not a pleasant place and so when somebody comes in and says hey this is the way to handle this this is what you should and shouldn't be doing at first it may sting the folks that are doing the wrong things but it's a refreshment to know what the word of God actually says and to submit if you're if you're a person that submits to God's word it's refreshing to have that as a guide the churches of Asia greet you Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house all the brethren greet you greet one another with a holy kiss the churches of Asia would include those in Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis. They were all founded thanks to the efforts of Paul as he responded to the open door of ministry to go to Ephesus. He didn't go to all those areas, uh, but people that got saved under his ministry did. Aquila and Priscilla owned the tent making business that Paul worked for in Ephesus. They too were addicted to serving God's saints. All the brethren still greeted them, even though the believers in Corinth were badly blowing it. It was no secret that the Corinthian church was full of these problems. As I've pointed out before, uh, all the churches had problems because they had people in them. And anytime you get people together, you're going to have problems. Uh, but Corinth, uh, you know, in, you could at least say <laughs> we're not Corinthian. Uh, I mean, these people were really out in what we would say left field. Uh, and yet they still greeted them in the Lord, believing that they could get it together and start walking with him again. In the New Testament church, a holy kiss was a symbolic expression of the love and forgiveness and unity that existed among believers. There's a whole history of the holy kiss that you can follow. Uh, men kissed men, men kissed women, women kissed women. It seemed to have a lot to do with communion as well over, year, over the years. So that it was an expression that you didn't have ought against anybody. Um, it, 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 we feel that it's more cultural than anything else. We, uh, you know, kisses, you want to kiss people, that's fine. Don't kiss me. Uh, I'm not a big kisser of people that I don't know or, or, or that aren't my family. In fact, I don't even kiss my family much. But anyway, um, I used to try and kiss my mom. She's so cute. She's about two feet tall and stuff. And so I'd go right for the neck, you know, and she's, oh, Jeannie. But uh, anyway, so I'm not opposed to it in general. But uh, anyway, we, I've told you the story before, but we've had guys here over the years who take the holy kiss a little bit too far with women. So um, then you have to talk to them, and that's weird. So anyway, that's between you and the person that you're dealing with. Handshake works for me. Um, so love, forgiveness, unity. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Paul dictated this letter to a copyist, but at this point he took the pen and wrote the final words himself. Simple gesture, but one that communicated his love and personal concern. We titled this series, Get Back to Where You Once Belonged. That is certainly the spirit in which Paul paraded these examples to the saints in Corinth. Let's celebrate their example of addicting themselves to serve, not as a duty, but as a delight, that's the, that's the difference. We're, we're not saying that you have to do something that's awful. It's delightful to serve the Lord. Number two, catch the earnestness of believers who have addicted themselves to serve, verses 22 through 24. We caught a few scenes from a Disney film, Togo, that features sled dogs in Alaska. Uh, I don't know if they're Malamutes or uh, Alaskan sled dogs or if they were Huskies. We used to own Huskies. Those dogs love to run. 
They're just all the time, even when they're asleep, they're like, can I get up and run? Can I get up and run? And if you don't walk them all the time, we used to have to walk our, I don't know why we had Huskies, I really don't. It's, don't let me ask you, this, tell you this, unless you have a 20 acre farm, don't buy a Siberian Husky. Uh, they're just crazy with energy. And uh, so we had this 80 pound Husky, you know, Cubby. His uh, a real name was Amhawks Cubbutahe. Uh, he, was, he was a paper dog. And then we had, uh, you know, over the years we had, and, and we would walk him at night in, in a harness, you know, two of them together. And man, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. I mean, there was like, you know, you've seen these guys walking down the street and the dog is pulling them. These dogs, they thought they were sled dogs in Hanford and stuff. And if we didn't walk them, they would just look at you like, you can't believe what I'm going to do to your yard. Uh, it, just when you wake up tomorrow, nothing's going to be the same as it was. I'm going to spill my water so you have to refill it or I'm going to die. I'm not going to eat my food and I'm going to tunnel everywhere that I can. I mean, and so they're just born to it. You have been born again to serve. You should be trembling all the time, ready to serve the Lord in that spiritual sense. That's what's coming through here. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. Love the Lord is shorthand for those who are saved. It doesn't describe a super saint, but every saint. Accursed is the word anathema and refers to the lost who will perish if they do not receive the salvation offered to them. They are already anathema. Paul isn't calling down some new curse on those who don't believe the Lord. It's their position before God as sinners. O Lord, come is a translation of the compound word Maranatha. Maranatha is formed by three parts, mar, meaning Lord, on, meaning our, and atha, to come. It can mean our Lord has come or our Lord is coming. It can also be the expression of your constant desire as you say to the Lord, come. It's the kind of thing you say to be reminded and to remind others that this life will soon be passed. Eternity awaits and we will awaken to it in the likeness of Jesus. For some years now, I've signed my emails, uh, Maranatha, Pastor Gene or whatever, and um, lots of, every now and then, over the years, lots of non-believers have asked me what that means. And so it gives you a chance to be a little bit of a witness there and stuff. But uh, we want the Lord to come. It, revelation ends, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? And that should be our attitude. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We too often prefer works to grace, programs to the person of Jesus. We begin the Christian life spiritual. Let's not pursue it in our flesh. I'm not sure this is exactly what Paul meant, but I think we can make the application. But so he's writing to them and he's correcting them as we've seen over these past 25 or 26 weeks that we've been in 1 Corinthians. We've seen all this correction. Uh, and so let's say that they receive that. Let's say that in every area they say, yeah, we want to get back on track. We don't want to be blowing it anymore. We want to really walk with the Lord. Then it's like, well, how do we do that? And I think the temptation for us as human beings is to find a program or a list of rules and regulations in order to get back to where we once belong. And I think Paul would say, hey, just repent and you're back where once you belonged. I mean, you, you know, there's no steps to it. Uh, you just do it. And that's such a hard lesson for us to believe that we have the power to do these things, that God's uh, commands include his enabling. God doesn't say, I want you to do that. In fact, we almost treat it like the law in the Old Testament. 
where the law says this, but no one can live up to it. So we look at the New Testament. Well, who could, how can I love my wife the way Christ loved the church? Nobody can live up to that, but I can sneak up on it by doing these 10 things. And the Lord would say, no, no, the, the Holy Spirit, he lives in you. You have the word of God and the spirit of God. You can do this right now. We'll never do it perfectly be, until we're in heaven because right now we're in these bodies of flesh and we're prone to sin and, and all those things. Uh, but we, you know, I think Paul might be saying, hey, don't, don't give into the temptation to run to the Corinthian bookstore and find out how to do this. Uh, talk to the Lord and he'll be with you. And then verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. Even the most straightforward reproof of Paul to them in this letter was motivated by love for them. He was in earnest trying to get them out of the proverbial pit and back on the pilgrim path. And so Paul was the guy that you could count on to say the difficult things and to say what needed to be said with a foundation in scripture uh, and with a firm foundation. Uh, that's one thing. If you're going to correct or reprove somebody, um, make sure that what you're doing is scriptural and, and that kind of thing. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor back east. He uh, called me last week and he says, hey, we got a situation here at the church where uh, there's a couple of people who aren't getting along and the elders want me to intervene and sit down and kind of nip it in the bud before it gets worse. And I said, well, okay, these individuals, are they in sin? No. Are they sinning against each other? No. Said, so essentially they're just having what you would call as a little bit of a personality clash, right? Yeah. I said, stay away from that as far as you can, uh, because essentially you're just going to sit down with them and say, I don't like you. Well, that's true, right? It's like, hey, you're not getting along. I don't, I don't like what you're doing. I, I really don't like you. And a lot of people don't like you. A lot of people don't like you. Just thought I'd tell you. So you can't go in there and say, hey, this is what the Bible says. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet or, you know, whatever. You're just kind of going on feelings. Let it go. Let them work it out. What's the big deal? Uh, you're you're going to create a mountain out of a molehill. And so if you're going to reprove somebody like Paul, make sure it's biblical and not just your own ideas. Addiction is defined by medical professionals as a malady, something to be avoided or cured but not in the case of serving the Lord. The application to our lives is easy. I'm either addicted, I'm either addicting myself to serving or I'm evading it. Here's a question as we end. Did Jesus come to serve or did he come to be served? What is true of him ought to be true of us because that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be like Christ. We live to serve him and to serve others.